Well, probably is obvious uh, to everyone that I am flying solo this morning. I do not have my partner Steve with me, who uh, is our assisting priest. He and Rebecca are uh, vacationing in the Netherlands uh, today and will be through next week. And he did text this morning just to send his greetings uh, to you. So in Steve's name, I greet you. You know, we're in part two of a 10-part sermon series exploring the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers called gentle and lowly. Over the course of these 10 weeks, broken up by a few Joy Together Sundays, which you kind of have to be here to know what that is, we'll examine 10 key passages of scripture used in the book Gentle and Lowly, which, by the way, is available to you. We just have four more copies of this though we have ordered more, and um, for those of you who attend here regularly, 10 bucks. For those of you who are visiting, free. Because if there's something important we want you to know about Jesus, it is, it is this. So, our small groups are going through the book and the workbook uh, together, and it has, been, it has been very good. But both the book and the series are built on a foundation of an invitation from Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine, calling those who labor and are heavy laden, in other words, sinners and sufferers, to come to him. Why? Because he is gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For the next little bit today, we're going to look at a passage in Hebrews chapter 4, through the frame of a word that in our context, in our current cultural moment, um, in our atomized, individualistic, and divisive culture, we don't really hear all that much. It's the word solidarity. The reason we don't hear it much today is that solidarity describes union and unity. It connotes a sense of harmony and oneness. Together, undivided, it literally means withness. Think Samwise and Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. And as we look into Hebrews 4 today, we cannot do so without considering the solidarity of Christ with us. If As you're already no doubt aware, uh, St. Patrick's Day is this Friday. We all know of St. Patrick, though probably some of us for more dubious reasons than others. He's said to have evangelized the entire island of Ireland in the 5th century. And so naturally, we celebrate his feast day mostly by drinking green beer and throwing up. St. Patrick's breastplate is a prayer of protection that is attributed to him, and it leans hard into the idea of Christ's solidarity with us. We have a group of men that have been studying the Bible together on Thursday mornings, and some of us are trying to memorize this so that we keep it ever before us. It says in part, Christ with me. Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ B 
before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. <coughs> so just a question, who in your life would you say you have solidarity with? A close friend, your spouse, a brother or sister, Maybe a parent, a child, or a colleague. Maybe you have very different personalities. Maybe you think very differently about the world, but you're just together. There's this unity, a bond you have with one another. That is solidarity. Maybe you've never experienced this, but if you have, you've experienced just a tiny fraction of the joy of Christ's solidarity with us because Jesus is divine but he is not distant he's ineffable ineffable but he is not detached he is ever with us and for us and alongside us ask saint patrick So let's turn, if you've got a Bible or a device, some of you have Bibles there under the chair in front of you, or the chair you're sitting on. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and sink our roots just a little bit deeper into the heart of Christ for us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in this passage, I see three kind of theologically basic but incredibly big ideas that I believe the more we can understand and experience, the more it will form the way we come to Jesus in our sinning and suffering. And the first one is this, Jesus is our high priest. Now, because of our context, the significance of a high priest may be an abstraction to us, so some Old Testament context might be helpful. Way back in Israel's wandering days, which we uh, were reading some about in the Psalm and in the book of Exodus today, way back in their wandering days, there was both a place and a person that played a very big part in the people connecting with God. The place was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a meticulously crafted tent where God's presence was mediated on earth. It was designed with three distinct sections. And this is just super high altitude. You could spend really weeks 
talking about the, the depth of, of the connection between the tabernacle and Christ, but we're just going to look at, at a really high altitude one. The first section that you would enter is called the outer court. Anyone bringing a sacrifice could enter there. And then, as you got farther in, there was a place called the holy place. Holy here meaning sanctified or set apart. It was a place reserved for the priests. The priests in the Old Testament represented the people to God. This is not what I do as a priest. I preside over a few things. That's really my job. I do not represent you to God. If you mess up, I'm not going to get punished for it. <laughs> harsh. The priests in the Old Testament represented the people to God, and the, the regular run-of-the-mill priests offered daily sacrifices on behalf of individuals for the covering of sin. But set apart even farther in, there was the most holy place, or the holy of holies, a place reserved for the high priest. So now we have a place, the tabernacle, and we have a person, the high priest. His most important duty was to conduct services on what was called the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in Judaism, known today as Yom Kippur, held every year on the 10th day of the first month of the Hebrew calendar. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, the only one who could enter the Holy of Holies, would enter the Holy of Holies though not without some fairly intense preparation and probably not a small amount of trepidation. He would enter the Holy of Holies and he would make atonement for the sins of all the people. At the Ark of the Covenant, which, as you know if you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, represented the presence of God on the mercy seat between the two cherubims. He would sprinkle the blood of a bull and offer incense, making atonement, covering the sins of the people for a year. And so, for the next year, the nation's sins would be covered over, in essence, making access to God possible for another year because the sins of the people had been atoned for. This was the role of the high priest. And the high priest and tabernacle together make a kind of gateway or connection point between heaven and earth. And throughout the book of, of Hebrews, Jesus is referred to as our great high priest, which is the Bible way of saying he is the better high priest, the perfect high priest. He's the high priest to end all high priests. He's the one, the author says, who passed through the heavens. Now, what in the world does that mean, passed through the heavens? Well, in the Jewish mind, and of course Hebrews was written to the Hebrews, in the Jewish mind, there were three heavens. We talked about this when we introduced Matthew at the beginning of the year. A heaven from the soles of your feet to the top of the sky, like right here. The next heaven, the second heaven, was space, outer space. The sun, moon, stars, what we would call the firmament. Beyond space, then, was God's dwelling place, what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 12, to as the third heaven. First heaven, 
second heaven, third heaven. So think about the parallel here. As Hebrews 4 talks about our great high priest, he's described as the one who has passed through the heavens, and he did. The first heaven, the outer court. The second heaven, the holy place. Into the third heaven, God's dwelling place, the holy of holies. The old high priest would pass through the outer court and through the holy place and then into the, the, the third place, the holy of holies. And what did he do there? He atoned for the sins of the people. And Jesus, he's like any high priest before him. He's our great high priest, and he has passed through the heavens into the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God. And through his work, his incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, he has paid the price, he has offered the sacrifice, and he has made atonement for the sins of the people. But unlike the old high priests, who had an ongoing yearly sacrifice to cover the sins of the people until next time. Again and again and again. Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice, as Hebrews 7 says, was once for all. A theme throughout Hebrews is the high priest of Jesus. And in Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, it says this. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those, those high priests to offer ongoing sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. But he did, but since he did this once, what is it? For all, once for all, when he offered up himself. He offered one sacrifice for every single person and for every single sin, past, present, future, once for all. Again, Hebrews 9, 24 through 26, it says, it says this. If only I'd marked these pages. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. And of course that Jesus shed his own blood. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, guess what it says, once once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He is our great high priest. He's the one who deals with our sin and gives us direct access 
to the Father. And we need him for that. We, uh, I was just, as I was thinking about this, I, I can't help but think of the uh, spring of 1994. It's a longer story. Um, I'm going to give you the highlights. Uh, I was leading a music group from the college and seminary where I worked, and we were in Bethesda, and we went to a church to do a concert, and the regular sound guy couldn't show up to let us in and give, you know, do all the stuff. And so a substitute showed up. He happened to be a secret service officer whom we'd never met one of those before and uh, Lauren got to talking to him through the course of the um, uh, of the evening and uh, lo and behold we ended up at the end of the evening uh, being invited to take a private tour of the White House so we drove into DC uh, pulled up to the gate you can't do this anymore we just drove right up to the gate um, he showed his ID they let in two vans full of kids <laughs> And um, as they were, as they were, as we were standing on West Executive Drive between the West Wing and the old Executive Office Building, um, we're just putting on our credentials that they had brought us, and suddenly we are just flanked by these Secret Service agents who are plain clothes, and we looked at the guy that brought us there and said, "What's going on?" He said, "I have no." <laughs> so we're standing there kind of at attention and up to us walks Bill Clinton and he just says hi I'm Bill and we got to spend probably 15 or 20 minutes with him we sang for him we sang and can it be and he stood there and sang the song with us and it was turned out to be the night that he had authorized a bombing in uh, the Balkans and um, he was, of course, Bill Clinton was always very effective, but was very effective. Now, I, I tell this story for this reason. It was kind of a cool story. <laughs> but we needed that guy. We needed a go-between. There is no way in the world we would have gotten in and had access to the president without that guy. We can't even remember his name. He's such a significant guy. We were talking about it yesterday. This is the same thing with God since mankind fell in Genesis 3 and it created separation. We all need a go-between. We need someone to, to mediate with God, someone to help us have access. We don't have that on our own. Because of our sin, we need a great high priest who has dealt with our sin so that we can come with confidence before the throne to give us access. This is who Jesus is and what he does. So that's the first big idea from the passage. Jesus is our great high priest. Here's the second thing. As a man, Jesus totally understands our struggles to the uttermost. What we see, we, 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 what we see in this passage and all throughout the New Testament is that Jesus was human. He is human. He's 100% man. It's why the author uses his human name here in verse 14, Jesus, rather than his title, Christ. 
He may be seated at the right hand of God in heaven right now, but he experienced life on earth as a human being. And because of his humanity, because he's walked in our shoes and is able to understand everything, and I mean everything that we ourselves go through, he is able, as it says in verse 15, to sympathize with our weaknesses. Etymologically, sympathy is the compound of two Greek words, soon pathos, that together translate with feeling. In English usage, to sympathize is to have pity or sorrow on someone else for their pain or to have common feelings or solidarity with another. And what we're told here is that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. In fact, it's in our weakness that he sympathizes with us. He doesn't say, it doesn't say when all is well, when all is well. It does not say when life is good. No, it's in our weakness. It's because he has walked in our shoes. He has faced every temptation that we ourselves face, yet without sin. And so he may be closest to us when we feel the most despair, when our struggle is the greatest. As a man, Jesus understands our struggles. He, he experiences every single temptation, or he experienced every single temptation that we face. He dealt with sorrow and loneliness and was tempted or tested by pride and lust and unforgiveness and greed and fear. And the reality is that he overcame every single one of these temptations. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. He, he says that because Jesus never fell to temptation, he actually experienced temptation in its fullness, where we never have, because we shortcut it when we fall to it. But he endured to the end. He endured all our temptations and testings without ever giving in. He therefore knows the strength of temptation better than any of us. Only he truly knows the cost. He understands whatever you're facing or dealing with, though nobody else around you may understand, though not everyone else around you will ever understand, though you may not fully understand. Jesus understands. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses because that's his nature. He's gentle and lowly of heart. Which brings us to the third big idea. Jesus is, as God, Jesus is both able and willing to help. Not only is Jesus 100% human, he's also Emmanuel, God with us. 100% God. We can see that in this passage in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, his title of humanity. But then the author gives us another title, Jesus, the Son of God, revealing his divinity. And as God, he's able and willing to help because he has faced in its fullness every temptation. Again, verse 15, we we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet. Just one more time. What does it say? Yet without sin. In other words, he never once caved 
to temptation. He never once buckled or folded. No, every single time he endured and came out victorious, not once did he submit. He had the power to resist every temptation. He had the power to pass every test. And now he makes that very power available to us that we don't have to wallow and struggle and fight in our temptation and weakness. But we always have a way to escape. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God, she just smiled at me because when we were trying to maintain our chastity when we were dating, this woman right here in the black sweater, my wife of 43 years, we quoted this verse every night we went out. Every time we went out, this was the first thing we said to each other. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not separate you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. <laughs> Those are good memories, aren't they? Didn't make it any easier, necessarily. <laughs> we did at least have a pathway. We have access to the power to overcome because of what Jesus has done. He, how magnificent is it that Jesus sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. But he doesn't just sympathize. He also offers us the help that we need to meet to meet us in that moment. In fact, he wants us to come to him in that moment. Come to me. He says, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And here in Hebrews, it's the same invitation. I want you to draw near. I want you to come close to me, and I want you to do it boldly. I want you to do it with confidence. And he describes the place where he invites us to, the place where he dwells as the throne of grace. I love that description, the throne of grace. In the finished work of Christ, the, the dual thrones of judgment and mercy, kind, kind of the way it was thought of in the Old Testament, the throne of judgment and the throne of mercy have been reconciled into one throne, the throne of grace. A throne we can approach, a throne that we can draw near to boldly with confidence, knowing that if we do this, go to this throne. He will help us in time of need. A fascinating Greek colloquialism that literally means in the nick of time grace just when and where we need it. It's, it's guaranteed that we will find grace at that throne. Why? Because it's the throne of what? Grace. Jesus made this invitation to us because he's our great high priest, because he's a man he understands and sympathizes with our struggle, because he's God. He has the power and is willing and able to help us. He says, because of all these things, you can draw near to my throne of grace and I will help you. I will give you exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. Thanks be to God. But if that wasn't enough, I feel a little bit like the Ginsu knife guy when I say, but wait, <laughs> there's more. Also from Hebrews, no matter the sin, no matter the struggle, when you come to him, he's glad to be with you in that moment. Did you hear me? He is glad to be with you in that moment. The third chapter of Gentle and Lowly opens with what was for me an incredibly evocative question. 
something I hadn't considered before. It's, this is the question. Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by blank. By what? How would you answer that question? Christ's joy, comfort, and happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by what? Well, we know from the scriptures, or should, that it pleases Christ, obviously, when we listen to and obey him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But there's an equally biblical truth that's been almost entirely sidelined in our thoughts of Christ, that his very heart and resulting joy is fully engaged, even in our failure and need. The author completes the sentence this way, Christ's own joy, comfort, and happiness and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing mercy and grace in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his people here on earth. He challenges us, this, the author of the book challenges us to imagine an independently wealthy, compassionate physician has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to an isolated people afflicted by a contagious and deadly disease. He's had the medical equipment flown in and the antibiotics are prepared and readily available. He desires beyond anything to provide healing. But the diseased and afflicted refuse. They, they prefer to heal or die on their own terms. Then finally, a few brave young men and women step forward to receive the care that's been freely offered. What do you imagine the doctor feels in that moment? Joy. He feels joy, and in fact, his joy increases the more the sick come to him for help and healing. Why? Because it's the reason he came. So it is with us in Christ. He doesn't get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness. He's not fuming when we come to him for renewed pardon in distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's precisely what, as our great high priest, he came to do. He went down into, the, into death and came out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace for those who come to him. He wants us to draw near to his throne of grace because that's who he is. He drew near to us in the incarnation so that his joy and ours would rise and fall together. His in giving mercy, ours in receiving it. And in fact, Christ gets even more joy and comfort than we do when we come to him for help and mercy. But is this biblical? That's where Hebrews comes in handy. Think about what we read today in chapters 4 and 7, the whole point of which is Jesus, the high priest to end all priests, Jesus, the one who has made the final atoning sacrifice to cover the sins of his people. Now consider these along with Hebrews 12 too, which many of us know, where Jesus is called the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, what joy? What was waiting for him on the other side of the cross? The joy of seeing people healed and whole and restored and forgiven, and not just once when we receive him by faith, but over and over and over again. His grace is invincible and inexhaustible and infinite. 
And lavishly giving it is the very thing that brings him joy. We must, before coming to the Lord's table and in this penitential season of Lent, rightly acknowledge and lament our many sins and offenses which we have committed in thought, word, and deed against his divine majesty. But we must also know and not allow ourselves to ever forget that when we do so, he's not standing far off with his arms crossed, tapping his feet with a disappointed look on his face. He's joyful, delighted to be with you in that moment. His joy rises because he's so happy to be doing the very thing that is his nature, the thing he lives for, the thing he most loves to do. Think about that. He's not embarrassed or angry or ashamed to be with you. He's glad to be with you in that moment. And as we discovered in our small groups last fall and are discovering in our Joy Together Sundays this spring, that's the definition of joy because joy is not abstract. It is relational. It's being with someone who's glad to be with you. Oh, be penitent. But in your penitence, imagine the face of Jesus graciously shining upon you. Imagine him lifting up the light of his countenance upon you and bringing you shalom, true joy and healing and peace. Don't, please don't let this penitential season pass without experiencing the joy of being with the one who's simply glad to be with you, even in your penitence. So profound is the solidarity of Christ with us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.